So here we are, end of day three, and um, just to say that the schedule for tomorrow, for those who are wondering, uh, will be up at after the last sitting today. Usually, it appears. Um, but just to to say one thing in case you forget to look, is that um, we'll have the usual wake-up time and then at 6.40 we'll have a sitting here rather than the gentle movement. And at 7 o'clock we ask everyone to be here uh, for the dana talk and the practical closing information from the coordinators. Um, and then the, the schedule will flow on till lunch, but just so you know that first change as part of the of the changing conditions that uh, we may already be experiencing to some degree. So this evening I'd like to um, unpack, unf- unravel the, some more of the teachings, uh, but particularly in the light of uh, the changing conditions, yeah, particularly in the light of conditions are changing and tomorrow we will go from retreat conditions, most of us, to um, non-retreat conditions. And, um, and the question that is really valuable to, to reflect on at that point is, well, what does the path look like as conditions change? Or how do we um, continue to practice within our lives? And this is really what the Buddha taught. You know, often when we come on meditation retreats like this or to meditation centers, the, um, we're really emphasizing the meditation aspect of the path that the Buddha taught, that the Buddha offered to us as a, a path um, of happiness and to happiness. But that path has... Um, and depending, you know, on the language you use, but at least, kind of, we can look at it as having at least three parts. And the first one is um, what I would call integrity or ethics, or the way we act in the world. Yeah, our action, our speech, our choices. Yeah. The second part is this meditative aspect that we've primarily been exploring here. And the third is wisdom, which we've also been exploring (laughs) a fair amount. Um, But all of these kind of um, are available as we've been exploring them here in retreat conditions, but they actually continue with us. The path continues as conditions change. And so the whole of our lives... Uh, can be part of our path of practice. Yeah, the whole of our lives, every area of our lives. And these three aspects that I've just uh, kind of mentioned, yeah, the integrity, ethics, action in the world, the meditative aspect and the wisdom, they all support each other. They're all woven together yeah, within the fabric of our lives. Yeah, they don't stand alone, separate from each other. 
so when the when um, when the Buddha offered this teaching, it's also very much offered as a cyclical teaching. Yeah, it doesn't have a beginning or an end, really, because as human beings. And through practice, we just keep deepening and exploring life and we come back again. And so many times the path begins with wisdom and it leads to wisdom and it just keeps going, you know, and then wisdom feeds deeper understanding of action, um, of ethics, of integrity, and that supports deeper um, explorations of of meditation and meditative qualities. And then that supports a deepening of wisdom. It kind of like keeps going in that way. But one principle um, of the wisdom teachings, which I'd, I'd like to touch on this evening, is the principle of dependent arising, yeah. which is really key to, to any understanding that we, we can have about experience, about the human condition and about how to bring the path into our lives. And this principle of dependent arising goes so deep and so subtle, um, but also is something that we can really understand, um, I think, fairly easily. (laughs) And one way, some of you know some of the dependent arising, dependent origination teachings, you might be expecting me to give you long lists at this point. But I'm not. I'm actually going to give a very simple um, way that dependent arising uh, is sometimes spoken of. And this is, this is it. This is the phrasing. Ready? Okay. So th- this is how it goes. When this is, that is. Yeah. When this is, that is. Therefore, when this isn't, that is not. Not so simple, huh? (laughs) Basically what it's pointing to is that everything and anything in life is dependent on something else. Arises dependent on something else. And if something has a cause or causes, something has causes, if we remove one of the causes, that affects the something. Does that make more sense now? Yeah. So sometimes called, you know, the principle of causality, but um, I think really helpful to understand that when in Dharma teachings, when we speak of causality, it's not one cause, one effect. Yeah, it's not that simple. Multiple causes, multiple conditions, yeah, multiple effects. And yet, if something is reliant on multiple causes, one of the causes changes, the something changes. Okay? Yeah? Okay. So this becomes interesting when we begin to look at our experience, as we've been doing, uh, we said this pretty early on, all teachings are practices, so how do we practice this? We start looking at our experience through this way of seeing, yeah, through this way of looking at life. Yeah, when this is, that is. When this is not, that is not. Yeah. Dependently arising nature, mutually arising nature of things. Um, so when there is stress, dukkha, ill-being, yeah, there is usually contraction. And, and just check for yourself. 
There are times when you feel ill-being, unease, unhappiness. There's usually a sense of contraction somewhere in the body or the mind. And also, something happens to our sense of self. So when there's dukkha, when there's stress, when there's ill-being, dissatisfaction, unease, is the sense of self strong or not in your experience? Not strong. Mm. Interesting. Anyone else? When there's a sense of stress, of suffering, of this is happening to me, is there a strong sense of me or a weak sense of me? Strong. I, I just want to, just kind of, there's no, it's not a test. Just kind of want to make sure that we're all getting this bit because it's quite important. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. So we can say that dukkha, stress, ill-being, sense of contraction in the body or the mind, and a strong dominant sense of self arise together. They mutually depend on each other. They co-arise, dependently arise. Which means that if one goes down, the others go down. Yes, goes back to this idea, this principle, that things co-arise. So if dukkha arises with contraction in the body, contraction in the mind, and with a stronger self, sense of self, in your experience, when the sense of self is less strong, yeah, is more, we could say, translucent, opaque, uh, porous, <laughs> If this, these are the words that make sense to me, hopefully they make sense to you. Yeah. Is there more suffering or less? Less. Yeah. It's just an interesting relationship. Okay? It's interesting to see that relationship because it offers us a lot of possibility. Yeah to see that relationship and the relationship to the sense of contraction in, in the body and the mind. So when we use, for example, the relax that we were using, that guideline we were using at the beginning of the retreat, when we relax the body, we relax contraction. Often when we relax contraction in the body, there will be less, the sense of self will become a little bit more diffuse, less solid, less tight, less dominant. And the degree of problematic, yeah, in the suffering will go down, in the dukkha will go down. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, my advisor here, the consultant, has offered some good advice. Um, so when we speak about sense of self, we're not talking about um, self-esteem, like those are two quite different things. Okay, so there can be um, a strong sense of self, which is more the sense of I, or me, or mine, which often comes actually at times when we feel pretty bad, yeah, about ourselves. So it can be a low sense of self-esteem, oh, I'm really, a, 
terrible. Dharma teacher, how did I not think to say that? Yeah. Do you see that there is, I mean, I'm joking, but I can, I can play act a little bit better. You know, oh, I'm such, such a terrible Dharma teacher. How did I not think to say that? And Nathan had to tell me that was so embarrassing. I'm really suffering. How am I going to keep giving this talk now? Do you see what happens in the body? The contraction? Yeah. Do you see what happens in the voice? Even when I'm just imagining it. <laughs> yeah. And do you see the suffering? We can see it. Yeah. It comes, it comes up. So there can be a sense of, oh, I'm no good, which is actually um, what we would call um, more of a sense of self, a heightened sense of self, because the self builds up around that. Thanks, Nath. And it's important, and maybe we can already see this, but this is really important to see, that when we talk about things mutually arising, it's not a linear process. It's not, oh, you know, dukkha brings contraction in the body, brings more of a stronger sense of self. Um, but they kind of mutually depend on each other. Yeah? And so we can work with any of them. Yeah, We can work with any of them to... Um, kind of bring down the level of intensity of the whole arising, of the whole human experience. And just remembering, yeah, this is, this is a kind of a way of giving you an, an example and also <laughs> quite an important teaching at the same time, but just remembering that things dependently arise, because this is true of everything. It's not true just of these three aspects of experience that I've just spoken of. The dukkha, ill-being, stress the contraction in the body and the mind and the sense of self. Um, but it's true of everything. Yeah. Everything arises dependently on other things, dependent on other things. And you don't have to believe me. <laughs> you know, Feel really free to explore for yourself if you can find anything that does not follow that principle. Yeah. Whether it's so-called internal things, you know, mind states, thoughts, emotions body sensations or external things, objects, phenomena, weather, uh, whatever it could be. So if we remember dependent arising, it's like a, it gives us a foothold or a handhold um, of relating to our lives and the events of our lives. So this is a, a, an interesting one. Um, so when we make a mistake, we're usually disappointed Right, those two come together, or we judge ourselves. If there was no disappointment or self-judgment, what would happen to the mistake? Yeah, it really is. Re it really is interesting <laughs> to look at life that way. You know, would the sense of mistake lose some of its intensity? if the response, if the reaction, if what followed, what came up with the mistake wouldn't be uh, whatever our habit is, you know, disappointment, judgment, beating ourselves up, trying to fix whatever it is. Yeah. So we can look at this, we can use this um, way of seeing to look at many different aspects of our experience. So, for example, when metta is present, when there's a feeling of 
um, friendliness of welcoming yeah towards others towards oneself towards life doesn't depend doesn't matter towards what when that is present what happens to the sense of dukkha of ill-being of stress yeah less yeah and what happens to the sense of self also less yeah so we can see these kind of relationships yeah and see these relationships that arise and when we see this we can apply it yeah we can say okay this is like a great new game i learned on this meditation retreat that i was on which is called apply dependent arising to your experience yeah so if there's pain in the body or there's difficulty somewhere and I apply this, okay, so there's pain, and the pain is dependent on the way of relating, mm-hmm. or at least the problematic aspect of that pain, as we've been saying over the days. So what happens when I apply it? And what happens is this movement of our lives from ignorance to clarity and wisdom, and from more harmfulness to harmlessness. Yeah. And from stress to well-being, yeah. This is this is the path. That's where it's leading. That's why we're we're on it. And a lot of the time, the way um, we view life, the way we're taught to view life, the way we habitually view life, is exactly the opposite of this principle of of dependent arising yeah we see things completely the opposite way yeah what we what we see how we view how we experience life is like um almost like an optical illusion even when we know yeah even when we know that it's different you know this is happening to me i am like this yeah this is who I am. Yeah. And we forget dependently arising, dependently arising, subject to conditions. So one example of this is, um, Nathan came up with this one or heard it somewhere and I've stolen it from him. Um, but it's a really great one. You know, if someone came and told you that um, the sun revolves around the earth, what would you think? Would you, would you agree? No. And yet, what is our experience when we watch the sun set? And what is our language that we use? Yeah? Our experience is that the sun is moving and the earth is still right that's that's our experience you know there's no problem with that (laughs) yeah and then we call it the sun is setting and the sun is rising (laughs) the sun is moving and the earth is still that's the language that we use yeah actually it's it's and we we know at least we're told by scientists that 
it's an optical illusion, right? That actually it's the earth that's moving and the sun is, is much more still than the earth is. Yeah. And similarly, you know, we can take that same thing towards that sense of self, of, of I am. Yeah. If we think of our experience, most of the time our experience is that the world revolves around me. Yeah, let's be honest. If this Dharma talk is good, it's because of me. If it's bad, it's because of me. You know, if suddenly you all get up and walk out of the room, it's because of me. Or whatever happens, you know, it's, it, the world revolves around me. Oh, I like that meal. I didn't like that meal. Oh, they must have. I actually get this here at Guy House. Oh, yeah, they must know I'm here. That's why Andy made those roast potatoes the other day. You know, probably got nothing to do with me. Yeah. But he knows I love those roast potatoes. Anyway, the world revolves. Yeah, we have this again, this illusion. We know, we know it's not true, right? <laughs> to some degree. And yet we have this illusion. And Stephen Batchelor has got a, a wonderful saying. He says, um, the Buddha did for the self what Copernicus did for the earth, which is put it in its rightful place. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one thing orbiting amongst countless others. Yeah, one thing orbiting amongst countless others, which doesn't mean we don't care for it because this is, you know, this is the body, heart and mind that we have the most direct contact with. So we have a responsibility to care for it. Doesn't mean we don't care for it. But what happens when we see it is it's just one revolving thing orbiting around in the universe among so many others. And that sense of, ah, the world revolves around me sometimes is useful <laughs> because it supports us to look after this one. Most of the time is not so useful. Yeah, it's not to the degree that it's there, and it's an illusion that we have. So what we understand about the world and how the world works shapes our actions, yeah? shapes our choices, shapes our speech. Yeah? And that, in turn, shapes our meditative qualities, our meditation practice. Yeah. And that, in turn, goes back to shape our view of the world, dependently arising again. Yeah. If I believe that things evolve around me, yeah, that will result in actions, speech, and choices that are more likely to be harmful. Yeah, if that is my belief all the time. And if I, most of us, when we act in ways that are harmful, that unsettles us. Yeah, we're sensitive beings. Yeah, sensitive beings. And so then if we sit down and meditate, yeah, that will affect the quality of calm, of presence, of gatheredness. If there's regret, 
So it all kind of feeds each other. And so these questions of I'm looking yeah, at how I live, looking at my choices. How do I... Um, how do I make money? How do I treat my neighbors? How do I relate to other beings that live very far from me? Yeah, what's my relationship? All of these become part of our path. They're not different. Yeah. How do I use the resources of the, resources of the planet? Yeah. That's a real question of deep practice because if we go back to the understanding that the world does not revolve around me and that these resources even though they come out of a tap and I get the bill are not actually mine yeah they're ours and ours includes non-human beings as well as human beings and ours includes future generations not just those that are alive now. Yeah. If we see this all, this is all part of our path. This is all part of um, the wholeness of our lives. So how we act, what we choose, how we speak, yeah, that affects our own well-being. Yeah, our own well-being because we are not separate. <laughs> We are also a dependent arising, arising mutually with other beings. So the key here, I don't want to make this too much of a rant. (laughs) The key is our interest in growth. Yeah, and what we're willing to bring to the table with our interest, our interest in growth and the cultivation of the wholesome. That is the key. If we are interested in growth, we can come back again and again to the moments, to the places where, um, you know, again, we've, we've acted from that illusion. Yeah, we acted from that sense that the world evolves around me. So our interest in growth and cultivation is what allows us to bring compassion, what allows us to learn, yeah, what allows us to continue yeah, to develop and to bring the fruits of our practice into the world. So it's not, what, not just what we do, but how we do it. Yeah. And not just what happens to us, but how we respond and what we learn that matters. So we can use what we've practiced here on retreat and bring that into our lives. The same things, remembering to pause. Remembering to pause in conversation, in the supermarket. (laughs) When we're with our family, when we're at our work, Remembering to pause and to notice what is present. Remembering to relax. Remember, relax eases contraction. 
which eases dukkha, which increases well-being and loosens up that rigid sense of self, of it's all about me. And when the body is more relaxed, when there's less contraction, the mind is more clear. And the actions that come for a clear mind are more likely to be on the harmless and kind edge of the spectrum. Remembering to breathe, yeah. So remembering to pause, remembering to relax, remembering to breathe, which does both of those (laughs) a lot of the time, yeah. When we remember to breathe, we can be creative, yeah, and support both ourselves and others as we attend to what is in front of us, yeah, and what is arising in life. And I want to share an example of this from one of my nieces many years ago. She's a very mature young lady of 12 and a half, as she would tell you exactly. I'm probably getting close to 12 and 7 months. She likes to be very precise about her age. But this happens when she was probably about four. And um, I picked, uh, my sister and I picked her up from uh, her nursery uh, school. And we went to a playground, and after about half an hour, 45 minutes, my sister had to go to work. And uh, I was the designated childminder. (laughs) And my niece, who hadn't seen her mom all day, uh, really didn't want her to go. Really, really didn't want her to go. And she started crying, and my sister tried to kind of soothe her and calm her, and hug her and cuddle her and explain that she's only going to be gone for a couple of hours and, you know, all that. But it it didn't really help because she was just so upset and she just kept crying. And the crying got worse and worse and my sister's clients were waiting for her, so (laughs) she eventually had to go. And there I was with this um, very upset little child, um, crying, red, um, angry... (laughs) not wanting me to be there at all and she was so upset that you know I was trying I you know I was suggesting things I said do you want to go home do you want to go and play on the you know slide or whatever do you want to go get a ice cream I can't even remember what I was offering all the kind of distraction strategies that one can offer to a child um but she was so upset that she couldn't even tell me what she wanted it was like (laughs) you know when kids are like that And eventually, um, I realized how uptight and stressed and contracted I was. And I decided to take a breath. The practice um, kind of came up. (laughs) And I took a breath. And then I thought, I wonder if it would be helpful to suggest to her to take a breath. And, you know, she was... She's a very talkative person. She still is all these years later. And she was really trying to tell me what she wanted, but there was so much crying that she couldn't. And I eventually said to her, look, you know, I really want to help you, but I can't understand what you're saying because you're so upset that you're not managing to speak. So why don't we try and just take three, dr- three deep breaths together? Yeah. And we just breathe together, three breaths and calm down enough so that she could tell me what she wanted which was to go home and so we did (laughs) yeah and that was it with the crying yeah she was still upset but there wasn't the big drama 
But when we remember to breathe, yeah, that's something uh, we are offering yeah, to ourselves and we're offering to others. Yeah. We can attend to what is in front of us. And similarly, uh, people have mentioned this, you know, on, on the retreat here, you know, a lot of us have been working with, um, you know, physical pain, other kinds of challenges and difficulties. And the way we've attended to them here is something we can also take with us. Yeah. So we can take that experiential knowledge for ourselves that it's possible to turn towards the difficult or the painful. Yeah, that we can do it. And that when we do that, sometimes something shifts in how problematic things feel. That we know different ways to soften around what's difficult for us or what's painful. Yeah, we can remember that. And we can take that, we can apply that yeah, towards our bodily experience towards our emotional experience. Yeah, we can take that on with us. And we can continue to use wisdom views <coughs> as a way of relating to, um, to life, yeah, towards our own experience and towards others. Yeah, we can use vis- wisdom views, and there are a lot of questions today about impermanence and relationships. Excellent questions. <laughs> Started actually yesterday in the talk, so I'm not going to um, try and kind of answer the whole thing, but I'm going to give an example which I think will be um, one that everyone here knows. So you know when you have some friction with someone quite close to you, yeah, usually with our, our partners, our parents, our children, sometimes our siblings. It's quite a close degree of of uh, closeness that is needed and you find yourself thinking and often saying you always do this familiar or you never do that anyone ever done that before you're not even going to bother to put your hands up right yeah what is that (laughs) you know in the moment we really believe it you know it happens to me i'm not i'm not cured it happens to me i find i find myself saying to Nath, or wanting to say, sometimes I see it and I just have to kind of shut up, but, you know, you always do that, or you never do that, yeah, and really believe it, yeah, really, there's a part in us that really believes that's true, and yet, you know, that can be something that we remember, when I hear myself say that or think that, can I pause, (laughs) yeah, can I take a breath? And can I see that that is not true? Yeah? It's not true. And what's underneath that? This is where it gets really important. Because we also know the other side. Yeah, when someone says to us, you always do this, or you never do that. And, you know, it's like, I'm not going to. Yeah? It's not useful. It's not useful. And there's something underneath there that is um, needing attention. Okay? Something in us has been hurt, yeah, in some way. 
And that needs attention. But if we go down that route of it's always like this, usually there's not much possibilities. So if we remember that, we remember impermanence, <laughs> no, everything changes. It cannot be. It feels like it right now. But it can't be that that's what always happens. And then we look again. What's actually underneath here? Or what would be a useful way of expressing what I need and what I feel that isn't locking someone into some characteristic or some trait or some habit and shutting the door on communication and on possibilities. Does that make sense to people? Can you see how something like impermanence can be really useful? Yeah when we're relating to someone. And remembering, you know, especially times when there's, you know, when there's a conflict of needs or when there's something going on. How am I seeing this? Yeah, how am I seeing this? What's actually going on? How does it feel in the body? And what happens if I look at it through a wisdom view, through a nature, through the sense of dependent arising? Yeah. What, what could have happened in the other person's day today that made them come in and do that? What happened in my day yeah. that made me react in that way? You know, we can really look at it and explore. And as we do that, you know, prioritizing the cultivation, um, prioritizing bringing forth the wholesome ways of relating, yeah, like Anicca, like dependent arising, but also um, like metta, like compassion, like generosity. And that changes our experience, yeah, like we, we spoke of earlier. When there's metta, or even an intention towards metta, yeah, there's less, the sense of self is less solid, there's less contraction, and there's less dukkha, there's less stress. So it increases our own well-being and it also increases the well-being of others because of that relationality, because of the mutuality. Something changes in here, it manifests in our words and our actions and our body language. It manifests. So I want to give an example of this from from my experience. and this is from Palestine. Um, let's see, take a moment to dive into this story. So we've been active in supporting um, particularly Palestinian farmers during the olive harvest in Palestine in, um, I guess for quite a while now, since 2006. And for the last 10 years in the same village. So we, we, we know the, the situation uh, pretty well. I know a lot of the people pretty well. Um, and it's, we support farmers who have issues accessing their lands. Uh, because Usually because they're close to Jewish settlements or to military camps or to roads. Um, but this is a particular time where it was a more extreme situation where the farmer's land 
we're actually already now inside the Jewish settlement because of various factors, including the fences of um, the settlements expanding and then including more and more uh, olive groves of farmers. And the farmers we were working with, they uh, need, so they need an army escort to go into the settlement to harvest their trees, and they only get three days a year to do that. Um, so it's a pretty tough, pretty tough situation. Um, so I went alongside with two other volunteers from, from our group. They were internationals. I'm originally Israeli, so um, I went as an Israeli. And I could notice pretty early on that the soldiers, so there were, maybe I'll just say, three volunteers, four Palestinians, um, all above 50, because again, they can only get a permit if they're above a certain age, and three soldiers. That was our group. And I could notice uh, quite early on that the soldiers that came with us um, were very respectful and uh, relaxed, but they still kind of kept their distance. So they sat in the shade at one spot, and then we were harvesting the trees. And as we moved amongst the trees, sometimes we got closer, sometimes they came to us. There was this kind of dynamic. And so um, I had some time to contemplate what I was doing there. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to contemplate. How am I relating? So it's easier for me as an Israeli. I know their situation. Yeah, I know they're 20 years old maybe and they're doing what they're being told to do. Um, and I still um, have a lot of difficulty with them being there. <laughs> yeah, even though I understand. And... So I had some time to contemplate and to ask myself some questions. And, and the main question is, what, what am I interested in here? Why am I here? Yeah, why am I here? And that question of why am I here has many, many layers of, of response. Yeah, so I'm here to support the farmers. I'm here so that they manage in three days to pick all the olives that um, they, they have. Um, I'm here because this is wrong and I'm standing up against injustice. You know, I'm here for many layers, but ultimately, yeah, on the deepest level, I'm here because what I'm interested in in life is to transform from the roots, yeah, the causes of suffering in the world. And those causes are greed, ignorance, and hatred. You know, that's the ultimate, the deepest down, that is why I'm here. That's why I'm in this olive grove, because I'm interested in this transformation. I'm interested in that transformation in my own heart, and I'm interested in that transformation in the conditions uh, that people live in and other beings live in. So internal, external. I'm interested in both. And so then the question was, okay, so here I am. <laughs> yeah, There's Palestinians. There's soldiers. They never talk to each other, except during, you know, <coughs> policing kind of activities. And here I am. What are my options? If what I'm interested in is transforming from the root, 
the suffering, which is rooted in ignorance, in hatred and in greed? What are my options? And what would metta, what would wisdom advise right now? And the advice was make contact. Yeah, break down the barriers. So I, you know, started a conversation. Just, where are you from? You know, where did you grow up? Yeah. How long have you been in the military? Yeah, just a kind of normal conversation. And that allowed them to ask me, why, you know, what's going on? They don't even know <laughs> why they're there. Yeah, what's going on? Why are they here? So we had a little conversation. Then, you know, I went back to harvesting and they came. And then we had a few more of these back and forths. And then um, when, when we stopped for lunch with the farmers, the soldiers who'd been sitting quite far away, they actually walked over with their packed lunches from the military base and said, ah, can we sit with you? And I looked at the farmers because it's, it's their land, yeah. And they said, yes. So they sat, and then they said, we want to ask you something. I said, sure. When you sleep in the Palestinian village, aren't you afraid? When you sleep in the Palestinian village, aren't you afraid? And I said, no. And they said, but if when we, you know, when we come into the village, they throw stones at us. And I said, yeah. I mean, I've seen many times when the soldiers have come in the village and they didn't get thrown, but I didn't say that. But just asking, but when you come into the village, what do you wear? And they said, oh, we wear uniforms. What do you carry? Carry guns. And have you got a vehicle with you? Yeah, we have an armored vehicle with us. Can you see the difference? And they could. And that was a moment where those roots of suffering, yeah, that ignorance got weaker because suddenly they could see <laughs> the situation in a different way, yeah? The world does not revolve around me. If I walk into a village wearing a uniform and holding a gun, I am not the same <laughs> as someone walking in with civilian clothes. I'm making a statement. Yeah. And seeing that, and that was enough for then, you know. It felt like so much had happened in that interaction with not a lot of words, yeah, some words, just enough. And then the Palestinian farmers came around to offer juice. Yeah. And there we were, having lunch together in an olive grove surrounded by a Jewish settlement. Yeah. Soldiers, Palestinians, and a few crazy meditators. 
meditating in action. So this dependent arising is at the heart of the teaching and it brings us back to our shared humanity. It brings us back to what really matters to us. It brings us back to uh, why we practice. Yeah, why we practice to transform suffering in this world for all beings from the root. Yeah, from the root. Because none of us exist separately, not dependent on others. Yeah, if it's the trees, if it's the water, if it's the creatures the beings that we share this planet with. None of us exist independent and separate. And our happiness too, yeah, co-arises, yeah. Our happiness too co-arises with the well-being of others. It's not separate. And we know that. We know when we're the most happy. And I was remembering yesterday, here in the hall, the friend who gave me this shawl, and I have to tell you about her. (laughs) She's an eye surgeon from Mumbai in India. And when she finished her studies, she went off like all the other, or most of the other students to work in private medicine. Yeah, working in public health in India is, is not very profitable. And she said after a couple of years, she was like, no, this isn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, this isn't worth it. I'm making a lot of money, but it's not where my heart is. And so she went back to the university hospital where she'd studied and devoted her life, must be at least two decades since then, to working with the poor, as she says, her and her mentor, who was her professor when she was a student. And we met them because they do these eye surgery camps across India, and uh, they come to the leprosy community where we go every year. They come for 10 days, And they do 2,000 cataract operations. 2,000. They give the gift of sight to 2,000 people working from 9 o'clock in the morning, usually till about 1 o'clock at night. Such an inspiration. But that clarity about what brings happiness for her, yeah. It's not a recipe for all of us exactly. But what brings happiness? Our happiness is not separate from the well-being of others. And I think this is one of the greatest delusions that we have as a human species. And we need to wake up. Our well-being and our happiness is not separate because we are not separate. We're not separate at all. So the deepest happiness lies in our mutuality, in our sensitivity and our capacity to care and our capacity to act. 
each in our ways. Yeah, caring for our families, caring for the earth, caring for our societies. Each in our way. But remembering that. Not separate at all. So let's take a, a quiet moment together to bring this to a close. So may our practice together continue to open us to the possibilities of our lives, to the beauty and the power of our interconnection and our care. And may our practice together support the transformation of suffering so that all beings everywhere are free from suffering and its causes. So thank you for your listening and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.